Hello and welcome to the Endurance Coach Podcast. My name is Mark Laithwaite and I'm here today with my co-hosts, ultra runner and sports psychologist, Dr. Ian Bordley, and also with sports injury specialist, Mike James, aka the Endurance Physio. Each week, we'll be telling you what's new in the world of endurance sports. We're going to have some amazing guests on the show and we'll be discussing how you can reach your true potential on race day. So sit back and relax. We hope you enjoy the show. Okay, well, good afternoon, boys, as always. I don't know how many times I've said this before, but it has been far too long, far too long since our last recording. So, Ian, how are you? Yeah, good. Yeah, um, training well and looking forward to uh, Lakeland in a couple of weeks. Yeah, all good. Aren't we all? Mike, you been busy? Extremely busy, actually. Teaching is opening up, so we're starting to see people in person again. Patients are coming back into clinics more. Athletes are out training and getting injured more. So very, very busy. Oh, well, I don't, that's a good thing or a bad thing that people are getting injured more. A uh, good thing for you. Um, well, at least they can get the help they need. So that's a good thing, isn't it? So, well, we've got a lot to talk about in today's episode. Um, but of course, we need to discuss the weather um, because we've had a few shocking days, I have to say, with some pretty... Uh, pretty bad downpours um now we're kind of going further south as we get from ian through to mike aren't we so ian what, what was it like where you are yeah it's very very mixed today um it's just starting to rain again now and i, I went out running earlier and i got absolutely soaked which has been pretty much par for the course recently so yeah it's pretty poor early and I, I can imagine it might be a bit brutal where you are mike flip a coin stuff as usual yeah, you could, go, you could go out in shorts and t-shirt, or you could be out in court and that's flip a coin. Yeah, but surely in Wales it's just short t-shirt, isn't it? For most of us, yeah. You lot wouldn't. I don't think you lot would hack it down here, but most of us are all right. Shorts and t-shirts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course it is. Well, we've got quite a few things to talk about today, and one, and of course, it was Ironman UK uh, this weekend or weekend just gone. So that's what we're going to discuss further. But of course. Of course, um, as tradition has it, we do start, as always, with Tweets of the Week. Now, if you're not familiar with Tweets of the Week, listening in, Tweets of the Week is very simple. We just recap our last three or four tweets, um, our favourite last three or four tweets, and uh, we've got one minute to recap them. We've got to try and get as close to one minute as possible. Now, Mike is the... uh, uh, obviously the outstanding favourite on this because he is uh, well trained and he has been tapering as usual for his tweets of the week um, so Mike do you want to go first and Ian do you want to get a clock on him yeah hello I'm going to let you can count him in. are you ready Mike do you need to do any stretching or anything no I always start cold I'll be fine okay you don't you believe t- in- you, you two yeah. always give me a nice buffer zone to win so I'm alright and you don't believe in stretching, do you? 
No. <laughs> <laughs> you need to do some kind of dynamic warm-up routine or anything then instead. No. Yeah, okay. I'm good. Cool. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna leave you in Ian's uncapable hands. Right. Uh, so give you a countdown, Mike. Three, two, one, go. Cool. So this week I got three, two of mine, and one is someone else's. My first one is about the importance of focusing on the things you can control when injured. I see too many therapists and too many athletes focusing on chasing a diagnosis, which sometimes can be helpful. Sometimes we can't get a diagnosis. And it's important to just focus on the things you can affect, like the prognosis. I also chatted about something we're going to expand on later on, dealing with the post-event blues and acknowledging that we know we put physical and mental effort into it, but we also invest a lot of emotion and we need to acknowledge that, appreciate it and think of ways we can cope with it. And then my final one was a retweet from Mrs. Cavendish, who had uh, gloriously shared everything Cav's been rolling back the years doing. And just that reminder that it's really important to always believe in yourself, no matter what others may believe in you. Done. That's, yeah, good going, Mike. You've uh, set the standard. I think you've been uh, spending the last couple of weeks practicing. Uh, 58 seconds, 0.6. Take that. Yeah. I'll take that. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, close enough. Close enough. <laughs> yeah. Should be, should be a three-foot tap in for that all. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, I think we're, we're fighting for second place, Mark. Yeah. I've already started setting realistic targets and just getting on the podium. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Mike, are you going to time Ian? Yeah, I'm good. Okay, ready Ian? Yeah, I'm ready. Three, two, one, go. Okay, the first of mine was a, a tweet of an article on low energy availability and how it affects the endocrine system and how that can impact upon your health. Talking about runners and how they have a tendency to, to under-eat, and I think that gives some really good advice. Discusses a lot of the impacts on the endocrine system, but... Uh, Give some advice in terms of eat enough always, eat too much sometimes, and eat too little never. So I think that's good advice uh, for runners. And then uh, the second one was actually a, a, an article that's on a related topic, and that was looking at uh, it was reviewing research on overtraining syndrome, syndrome and relative energy deficiency in sport, and looking to see whether it's actually under eating that can explain a lot of overtraining syndrome and seeing that there's a lot of shared pathways and symptoms and a lot of overlap between overtraining system uh, syndrome and relative energy deficiency system uh, in sport. And then uh, the last one was an article on ultramarathon running, how safe is the sport? And this came out of the issue at the 2021 Yellow River Stone Forest 100K uh, in China, where 21 people had died. But really, this gives a much broader discussion of the actual risks uh, involved in the sport. And actually, I think it gives a really good balanced um, view of the sport and actually shows that actually it's quite a low risk in the sport. That's done. Cool. Silver's still up for grabs, Mark. One <laughs> <laughs> 121.1. Even I thought that dragged on. <laughs> yeah, both of you, you start your third one at 55 seconds. <laughs> Oh, out of practice early. Ian's always better with the long stuff. He's very slow twitch, isn't he? Yeah. So Ian, Ian's never going to nail three tweets in a minute, but he'll uh, 
he'll do 2,400 tweets over 20. <laughs> right, you ready? Yep. Ready to squeeze in the middle? I'm always ready. Right, three, two, one, go. Okay, my first one is my seven-year-old daughter, Cora, was taking, play, uh, taking part in a cycling uh, thing at, at school and they were having little races on the field on these little BMXs and uh, she clipped the lead boy and nearly knocked him off so she could take the win and uh, when we got home when she got home her mum told her off and uh, I had to play the role of agreeing with her mum and saying that she shouldn't do it and then when her mum's back was turned she turned to give me a little sly wink and my wife noticed it and I got bollocked for it and I don't see why that's fair it wasn't even she I wasn't winking at her. So I got done for that, which I thought was a travesty, really. My second one is about tapering. Um, and because before I am in the UK, just that noticeable lethargy when you start resting for things, how it affects you in the taper psychologically and physically. And my final one, uh, having raced in Man UK at the weekend, was my proudest moment was when he was a lap ahead, to be fair. I passed Tim Don on the road. And I slowed down to get a shot with him. And he, uh, he, he waved to the camera and gave a little great, uh, great photograph that one of my mates took. The legend that is Tim Don. And that is me done. Nice. 113.8. The first one dragged on too much, didn't it, about Cora? Yeah. Well, I, the second one, I thought you were going to pinch it because you, you squeezed the second one in super sharp. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. But I would say that first one with Cora, I thought that is a bit like... Um, you know, like father, like daughter, that it's a very tricky situation that with a child, isn't it? When she said um, she got told off because um, the lead boy in the final corner, she went on the, down the inside and clipped his wheel and then she took the win and she got told off for doing that. And then when she came home, I had to continue the facade of pretending to tell her off. <laughs> and then when her mum's back was turned, we had a little celebratory wink together but I just got caught out. <laughs> but she didn't get told off. She was the one who clipped the boy's wheel, not me. But apparently as a responsible adult, that was not the thing to do. So I'm the one who got all the blame. But there we go. Um, but yeah, so what, did I get second? Sorry, I'm losing my track now. Did I get yeah. second? Yeah, yeah second. Like yeah. How old are you, Mike? How old? Yeah. I'm the respectable old middle age of 45 now. Oh, unbelievable. So you're in the 45 to 49 category, so I didn't even win my age group in Tweets of the Week. Mm, no. <laughs> <laughs> Unbelievable. <laughs> anyway, anyway. I was I was showered and home with my medal by the time you'd come in. So. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Sat so there on live tracker. <laughs> you'd be in the 50-54, so Mark, then you'd be all right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, moving on. <laughs> I am Man UK. Finally, racing's back as well, and uh, it's. Uh, I, what's next after that? I've got. I'm doing Ironman Wales in ten weeks. What do you think, Mike? You're Welsh. You can give us some info on this. Do you think Ironman Wales will go ahead? I'm going to sit on the fence and say I really don't know right now. I was. Ne- I nearly said yes then. Yeah. But um, we have been very conservative. Yeah. In our approach to everything. Um, if we'd recorded on the weekend, I'd have said yes. But there's been a couple of ten- high-profile 10Ks and half marathons cancelled this weekend. Mm. Um, so I'm, I'm, 
optimistically yes, but they could turn around and cancel anything at any time here. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, let's hope. I mean, I would say um, in Bolton at the weekend, it felt like, uh, well, I wouldn't say it felt like we were back to normal because we weren't back to normal, but it was certainly kind of heading in that direction. You know, and uh, Bolton Council um, fully supported it. And uh, and I guess because spectators are outdoors as well, it's not as it's not as obviously as, it's not as if it's like an indoor concert or something like that. People spectating outside and they're encouraging everybody still to maintain social distancing and wear masks and stuff like that. But but yeah, apart from the absolutely shocking biblical weather, it kind of felt like we were getting back back to normal a little bit. And uh, it's um, yeah, so I guess we've just got to see over the coming weeks. And of course, we've got Lakeland Hundred. Lakeland Hundred is two weeks on Friday. So uh, we're still kind of going full full bore for that, but uh, I don't foresee any any changes. Just got to see what happens. The, the timing's better for Lakeland than uh, for Ironman Wales, isn't it? Just thinking in terms of when things open up, and then any wave that comes off the back of that is probably going to be yeah six six weeks or so after that opening up, which is bad timing for Ironman Wales. That's the only thing that I would think that might cause problems. But yeah, really, no. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, and I think, and I mean, the, the event's going to go ahead without a doubt. I don't see anything stopping the event to go ahead. It will just with how it will look and what measures we, will be in place. I'll be honest, the thing that I'm most worried about is when I'm looking at stuff on social media, I feel this whole mask or no mask thing is starting to become quite aggressive and divisive, with people very aggressively arguing one way or the other. And what bothers me is how that will, you know, how that will play out on a weekend with lots of people there. If you ha- if people don't have to wear a mask, but some people prefer to wear a mask, you know, there's been a lot of things throughout this whole pandemic which have been led to people. It becomes a bit divisive, and that's bothering me really. That kind of social knit, if you like, how, yeah. you know, whether people are going to be. You know, what I suppose what I'm saying is simply is I don't want people to be having a go at each other <laughs> because they think, yeah. the one way or the other. And I, I think that could continue to be a, a long-term issue, unfortunately. I mean, I did two races in the lakes a few weeks ago, uh, back-to-back weekends. I did the uh, Lake Sky race mm-hmm. and then I did the Ennerdale Horseshoe the following weekend and they were poles apart in terms of the measures that were in place. Uh, yeah. And that was the same regulations. One week, you wouldn't have known anything was happening there wasn't a mask in sight and apart from the odd person who chose to wear them but uh, uh, the following week they were compulsory so yeah. it is I think, uh, and I think that um, and that was at a time when obviously the the regulations were still in place I think the fact that the government sort of taking that restriction away puts it down to personal responsibility really opens up the opportunity for people to really target the individual in terms of you know the, their choice um, so it could be problematic, I think, unfortunately. Yeah, I just think I just think there's potential there. It's not going to affect, impact the events as far as I'm concerned. I just don't hope it doesn't impact on the atmosphere and how people mix and how they get on. So I think there is just, you know, we're probably at a time where people just need to be a little a little more sensitive to things like this. And, you know, what, whatever people's individual decisions are, you know, respect their decisions, isn't it? And that's 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 the way it's going to be. Yeah. But uh I think you've got to. I think you've got to add the un, the added unknown in and around racing that 
there's so many other emotions and feelings and things yeah. going on with people that yeah. it might just be the the touch paper or the spark and the yeah. real issue is something else or so just having a bit of empathy towards why people might be flared up in their feelings and emotions would be would be cool. Yeah, yeah. It'll be fine. It'll be fine. I'll dress up as a fox and do a dance. It'll calm it all down. <laughs> um so yes, I am on UK. Did you uh, did you get a chance to have a look at it? Are you following anybody, Mike? Do you have any athletes racing? Yeah, I did. I did about half a dozen athletes racing, either as coached athletes or, or patients that I'd rehabbed. Yeah. Um so I paid quite a lot of attention to it, particularly as it was a strange year as far as people had um, different mindsets and different fears and trepidations about it. So um, they all did okay. Yeah. Um, but some interesting reflections from them and then subsequently from me from it. But it was nice to see people racing. It was nice to see such positivity back online with people sharing their successes and um, and their journeys. Yeah, yeah. Do you know, actually, go back to one of my tweets, just talk about tape room because... I think uh, just the, the physical act of tapering is probably one of the most mystic things that any athlete has ever had to be faced with. And no one ever knows whether they're tapering enough or not tapering enough. Uh, um, and, and the impact of that taper, how it affects people physically, psychologically, you know, I think it's one of the hardest things. Following a training plan is easy knowing how long and how much you should taper and knowing whether it's right or wrong is perhaps the most difficult part of the training plan. Uh, Ian, what's your thoughts on that? Yeah, it's an interesting one because uh, you, what you'd perhaps think from a psychological perspective is that actually the more times you've been through the process, the expectation and the anticipation of how you'll feel um, would mean that you'd have less of that effect subsequent times. But my own experience and then listening to the experiences of athletes, that's not how it plays out. People generally still, you know, experience a lot of very strange sort of feelings uh, and not always exactly the same from one time to the next. So I think it's almost being prepared for that uncertainty, I think, is is one of the most important things. So I think in terms of being able to psychologically prepare yourself and prevent having those sort of feelings during um, a taper is probably um, you may be setting yourself up for uh, a fall if you try to do that but I think psychologically you can cope with it much better and I think what you've got to one of the best ways to do that is to actually not overstate the the potential effects of doing things differently in your taper so uh, accepting what the, the plan that you've got uh, and sticking to that um, based on your past experience, the experience of your coach, whoever, you know, whatever's fed into your decision, accept that all of those, that decision making was based on the best evidence that you had, and then you'll follow it, and then um, expect to still have some days where you, you feel absolutely flat, um, when your muscles are not feeling great, but then accepting that is actually part of the process, and that is actually you getting ready for the event, even though it's not necessarily that pleasant at the time. Because yeah. I think that's the bit you can take more control over in, ter in terms of how you respond to when you do feel like that, rather than trying to prevent yourself from feeling it. Yeah. Uh, I mean, we, we all know people that probably don't admit to it or are masking it and are you know, saying they're feeling great and everything. But I think a lot of the times that's probably um, 
front a lot of the times. I think most people do experience some uh, rather strange feelings during the taper. And the best thing is uh, is to focus on how you're going to um, deal with that. And I think accepting that they're going to come, but also that you've made the best decision that you can in terms of what your plan should be. And regardless, if you taper differently, you'd probably still feel strange. Accepting that as well, I think, is important. That is just a necessary part of the, the process of building up to the event. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Mike, what's your thoughts? So it's a really interesting topic that we're, or a timing that we've decided to um, to chat about it because I'm literally putting a webinar together on tapering because it just seems to be talked about so much. Um, I think I'd echo a lot of what Ian said. Um, I think people judge the perception of a taper too much and not the outcome of a taper enough. Your taper should be basically reflected by your performance, not how good or bad the taper felt. There are many other reasons beyond the taper itself or the training program that's led to it that can affect how you feel in a taper. Um, And again, echoing Ian's words that tapers shouldn't be standard. It shouldn't be standard between yourself. It shouldn't be standard between what others do. and we a lot of people just pick a pick a number based on what norms people do or what someone else has done and there's no right you know there's absolute wrong ways to do it but there's many ways to get it right so um so yeah I'll, when when maybe we'll do an episode on it based on some of the stuff i put together for the webinar but um i, I the big thing for me when i'm talking to people about their taper is okay so you've told me that you felt crappy in the taper but how did the race go? And then most of them will go, yeah, yeah, cool. I set a PB. Okay, so the taper worked then. Um, it, nobody likes to feel that. And it's the negative and the potential negatives that we we suspect may happen because we don't feel great in a taper. But you should always rather feel rubbish in a taper and perform well than the other way around. I've never seen any evidence that there's a, a correlation between feeling great in a taper and performing better. So, yeah. um so we, it, it is, Ian used the words necessary evil, and I think that's so appropriate. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I had this conversation with quite a few people in the weeks, and that's why I'm in UK, and we're talking about it with coached athletes. And I think what just a couple of things uh, that I see quite common is people believing that the taper needs to alter depending on race distance. So we'd have a common conversation, which would be, if it's an iron man, I'm going to start tapering with four weeks to go. If it's a, and I'd say, well, if it's a sprint distance, how long would you taper for a sprint distance? Well, I'd probably only start, I'd only taper over four days. I'm trying to make this point that a, a taper has nothing to do with the race distance. A taper is designed to allow your body to recover from the training load so you can perform at your optimal level. So does it take four weeks for your body or does it take four days for your body to recover? Because if you want to be at your optimal level for a sprint or for an Ironman, how long does it take your body to recover? You know, it can't, it can't be both. And so people think the race is long, it's an Ironman, I've got to taper for four weeks. Well, why? You know, it's just because it's a longer race. So the race distance is irrelevant. What's relevant is how long does it take your body to recover? What have you got to do to get your body in peak performance? So I think there can be a tendency sometimes to, for, for some people to over taper. Um, mm. And I think, as you say, it's a very individual thing as well. So the more training you do, I would argue probably the less you need to back off 
because you're better conditioned. And I also think it has less impact when you back off as well. So if you don't train that much at all, you're probably fresh most of the time anyway. And when you back off, it's probably no great change. But I think people like if you look at the pros and they're doing very high volume and high intensity, if they suddenly back off a lot, then um, they get very heavy, very lethargic and can often race worse because they're used to doing a certain amount of training. And, uh, you know, when tapering first started and people said back off 50 percent of your training load, it was really for people who were running 100 miles a week. So they'd back off from 100 to 50 miles, wouldn't they? So, you know, that it, it is very individual person to person, but I, but that's the most common thing. But then there's also the sign, which is fascinating. And, and I want to kind of come back to this, because when I started, as soon as I decided, right, I'm going to taper. My first session in the taper was actually a 90 minute run. So it's not like I just dropped down to 30 minutes. And for the next day or two, having felt really good, I felt absolutely awful and that must be a psychological thing because nothing physical it couldn't be a physical thing because it was the first couple of days of backing off but I just dropped you know I run from three hours to one and a half and I dropped a bike ride from six hours to three hours so I was still exercising but as soon as I started the taper I felt awful and I wonder whether that's something more to do with the stuff we've discussed in the past where my brain said oh shit we've got a race next in two weeks time we've got a race next sunday so am i now starting to feel anxious and because i know that i've got a race coming up it triggers some kind of anxiety or something uh ian what's your thoughts on that yeah i think um you know if you think of it in terms of sort of central governor and you know fatigue being something that's generated in the brain then it makes a lot more sense. And I think once you've taken that decision, obviously it's a conscious decision or you're consciously aware of it when your taper starts, it's a period in which you've sort of accepted that the training in terms of adaptation is done now. What I'm actually doing in my taper is doing enough training to maintain the fitness that I've got and then get fresh for race day so that I can get the most performance out of that. Actually, it makes sense for the brain to sort of generate feelings of fatigue because what that's actually doing is making sure you don't do any more than you need to do that year. It's actually trying to get you to to rest. So everything you're doing in terms of training all of a sudden becomes sort of counter to that, whereas prior to that point, everything is about trying to get adaptation and improve. So you're seeing it in a you're viewing it in a different way. So I think it starts to make sense that your brain is generating feelings of fatigue during the taper because you have mentally accepted that this is a period period where you're building towards what would be an A performance and A, a grade race. Yeah. So yeah, that's how I've started to look at it much more, and it, that does make more sense then when you you experience those feelings. Yeah, yeah. I think maybe is that just you that just identification in your brain you are accepting we are now into race mode and the race is approaching. And we did talk about we had a discussion quite a few weeks back about as the season began how people start to feel quite low and lethargic and that perhaps it's because they suddenly realized okay the training's kind of been done now and now we're going to have to start committing ourselves and putting our neck on the line and doing some races and maybe that anxiety almost led to a bit of lethargy you know that that switching focus between i've been training all winter quite happily following my nice routine but now races are upon us and how that impacted people and they were quite nervous and it led to like a lethargy and a lack of motivation and I, I feel that's what really happens to me in the taper within a 
as soon as I start, it's that mental switch of, oh God, this is it now, we're on countdown. Yeah, the, the, it's also that point where you recognise there's no real opportunity then for you to do anything more positive. Everything you seem yeah. to do seems to be a risk in terms of doing some, you know, if I tweak something now, if I get injured now, there's no time. I can't actually do anything that makes me any fitter. I can only do things that might undermine the fitness I've already gained. So it feels as though the risk is much higher in, uh, when you train at that time as well. So there, there are lots of things that are sort of building that anxiety uh, at that point. Not Training itself can become more anxiety uh, invoking as well as the, obviously the upcoming race, I think. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But on the race itself, I mean, there's so many things we could talk about. And, you know, it was great to see everybody back racing. And God, it was a hell of a race as well. And uh, and the weather was pretty biblical. And it was like a battlefield on the bike course and seeing people, you know, crashes and people missing the cutoff because the, the, the course is very tough as well. And there's lots of things we can kind of talk about in this podcast. But going through them one by one, I'm going to pick that one first of all, which is the crashes. So for me quite an interesting thing and maybe we'll talk a bit more about this later on but we always I personally have this thing about um obsessions with FTP people focusing very much on the FTP as if it's um, the be all and end all of cycling so your cycling performance is rated by what's your FTP that's how good you are almost more so than race results these days sometimes and I know a lot of people have spent a lot of time on Zwift working on their FTP to try and boost that figure to give themselves a bit of kudos when that course uh, an Ironman UK course it's not about who's got the best FTP it's about who is the best cyclist and there are so many facets to that who is the best cyclist and one of them without a doubt is bike handling skills descending cornering and especially when it started raining torrentially and it got very wet and some of the bike handling skills going downhill and going around the corners and then on the ballot because it's a three-lap course so they changed it to a three-lap course this year which condensed people a little more you were lapping people who were lapping people and some of the roads are very narrow that naturally led to a lot of accidents um, and I know you posted something about this a few weeks ago Mike uh, so I'm going to come to you on this and your thoughts on it yeah absolutely i'll just go back and start, add one thing to the tapering thing which i think is important is um in the age group and the recreational athlete we often forget the other things we do in a taper that we don't think of we think about the training and the rest but uh, as a quick example two of my athletes this year one's a tradesman and because he factored his training he factored his work sorry to allow him to get more training in the normal so once he went in taper and cut his train and he upped his work. So he was feeling lethargic and tired, but he was adding four or five hours to his working day. Someone else who was self-employed had realized that they were going to be away for an extended weekend. So they started burning the midnight oil to try and get more work in, in advance. And then they sleep less and they worry more. So so I think they're important factors to think of with a taper. But with with the bike handling, yeah, I posted about this a couple of times because I'd st- I've started to see more injuries from crashes, and um, I think, as you mentioned, in the quest to be more efficient cyclists, we've forgotten to be effective cyclists sometimes. Um, 
lots of in, you know fantastic to have all the indoor opportunities online opportunities that we've got coupled with the fact that a lot of people have trained on their own or in smaller groups over the last couple of the last year or so uh, i think generally people have taken their eye off the ball how important it is to stay upright on a bike and to be able to ride a bike well um so i i you know bike riding is a skill any skill is trainable and we should be out learning those skills i've seen tons of people training on a bike that's comfortable for their zwift or their peloton or whatever they're using and they don't pull out the race bike until race day or a couple of rides before race day and they're just unfamiliar with it again they're unfamiliar with riding in groups and racing in groups and i know that's pandemic related in some ways i've seen people um be less familiar with the routes you know, there's lots of ways these days to learn about the routes, but there's, they're not the same as being on the routes. And I know, again, travel's been restricted, but um, it's only about seven to ten days before the group, uh, before the race that I started seeing in the in the appropriate Facebook groups, people starting to ask about the bike route, people to start asking about the road surfaces, to start asking about what the possible danger zones were on, on the route. So, um you know, as kids, if you're old enough, you remember going in the school playground and learning how to ride a bike properly, how to stop, how to start, how to navigate junctions. And I think we've got complacent. People don't spend enough time just riding to ride better. And I think that's yeah. caused a lot of the problems that we've seen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I would say on the, on the course on Sunday, certainly when it started to rain, you could see that people, a lot of people were petrified going down the hills when it was wet. And um, if you're if you're used to bike handling and you do a bit of, you know, ride your bike a lot outside and riding in all weathers and mountain bike and all that kind of stuff. I mean, there were just huge, huge time chunks to be gained on other competitors. And that's not because you're riding recklessly or irresponsibly. It's just because you've just got confidence and riding skills. But, you know, they're just huge time. So 20 minute power is all very well, but 20 minute power doesn't work great when you're spending most of your time cornering and descending. And you're losing half an hour over someone else, you know. Mm. But again, and again, what what has made us, what's made life convenient for endurance athletes is is a negative as well. So my current thing that I'm doing right now is I'm doing a 50% Tour de France. So I'm halving every day's distance and trying to accumulate that. And like we chatted at the start, the weather down here is flip a coin. It's been so easy for me some days to open that door and go, I'll just jump on the indoor bike. I'll just jump on Zwift. I'll just do it here or there. Instead of the old school of I'm wheeling the bike out and I'm going. And and I think people have done that more and more increasingly through training. Oh, well, I'll just, you know, I'll just jump indoors because I can get my mileage. And as you say, focus on the physiology of my ride, not maybe those subtle things, the, the skill side of it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's the best cyclists, basically, you know, the best cyclists on those kind of courses. It's always the best cyclists who are going to do well not the person who can produce a highest power output on an indoor trainer for 20 minutes, you know, and uh, obviously if you are both of those people, then you're going to do very well. Um, and then something else that's worth talking about, aside from the old, the uh, bike skills is um, just people in general, I would say quite a lot of panic attacks in the water, people struggling in the water. And um, I guess maybe this is something to do with the fact that there's been no racing as well. And race scenarios, we talk about how, you know, training is very, very different to race experience. And, you know, talked in the past about, I've said this a million times, a training plan is very safe. 
you know, as humans, we love routine. It's good for our mental health to have routine. And we just tick our little boxes. And I did my swim this morning and I did my run tomorrow. And there's no threat in a training plan. You're just ticking boxes and, and, and just working your way through it day by day. And it gives you some structure. And then suddenly we throw these races, these challenges, physical challenges and mental challenges. And I'm not sure people were just were ready for it. I don't think they'd had the practice. Um, what's your thoughts on that, Ian? Yeah, I, d- I definitely think there's something in that, and um, uh, particularly in terms of just not being able to get that preparation. I think a lot of the times we, we plan our race season around sort of A, B and C races, uh, and often they're building up in sort of intensity and distance, or dropping intensity but increasing in distance. So you get the opportunity to familiarise yourself with the race environment much more and you build up normally. I, I do wonder if people... Um, have not been able to do that this year as much as they normally have um, because of restrictions, because of cancelled races, but also just because yeah, they, they maybe haven't planned that or maybe just travelling is just that much bit more difficult now because of you know the restrictions that have been in place. But also, even if this year was normal, last year was very much not that normal. Um, very few people got to race and certainly didn't get a, a normal competitive year. So I wonder if that's um, led to people having a slightly different build-up as well. That might have influ- influenced people's um, race build-ups because as we talked about earlier in this year, it did seem as though the thought of racing when people started getting close to racing, that was you know, causing some issues in terms of anxiety. So perhaps that's led to people avoiding it. So taking a more avoidant strategy but the big goal is still there at the end of it. So people maybe found themselves at an Ironman when they've done very little racing in the build-up. Um, and then with a, a year of no racing last year for many people, um, that obviously doesn't prepare you very well, does it? So, yeah, that would that would explain. And obviously the open water swimming as well um, and, and perhaps the panic attacks in the water. Yeah, yeah. Mike, any thoughts on that? Yeah, the word I've literally scribbled down is rustiness. I, I seemed I, I've picked up a lot, and someone did use the word to me themselves that they felt rusty, just felt like the muscle memory and the sort of recall to previous races and r- race environments was was a little bit off. Um, I'm sure with a bit more racing, people will tune in, and, and that'll all zero itself back to back to um, a level playing field that we're all used to. But um, yeah, it's something you can simulate in training, but it's not the same. You know, you, you can you can't replicate being in a race. I, I had a lot of trepidation from some people I was chatting to um, a, a lot of sort of um, the what ifs rather than the I know this will be OK. So, um, yeah, yeah. A sympathy with them. Because it was harder to replicate that in training and it's been yeah. a long time for some. But yeah. I think coupled with that is probably. Um, a false sense of expectancy some people put on themselves as well. This will just be fine. doesn't matter that I haven't done it for two years or a year. I'll just be okay. It's not, it doesn't work like that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you know, there have been smaller events, but like that kind of scale event, like Ironman, for example, there wasn't any Ironman races next last year, but some of the smaller events did go ahead. But yeah, just on those grand scale, you know, there's, there's not really been a great deal going ahead. So for some people, of course, it's been a two year project now, hasn't it? Because they got their entry rolled over from last year. So even, you know, it's been going on for much longer. So I guess the longer it goes on for and it's 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 
the expectation builds up even higher. But uh, something else which is interesting, you just mentioned there as well, Mike, we're talking about this, you know, people predicting race times and transfer from training to racing and stuff. And that is quite fascinating when you, you would see the chat beforehand and people predicting, you know, what they think they should be able to do. So what time I should be doing in an Ironman. And then I'm always fascinated to watch the posts afterwards. Are people disappointed or are they happy with the time? And I guess, and it always depends on what their goals were. And sometimes they don't publicly tell you what the goals are. They've probably got it in their own mind. But are people happy with the performance? And you see a lot of people um, just happy to complete it and get round, and that was the goal. But then equally, a lot of people probably always feel they could do a little bit better. And I think with Ironman, it, with an Ironman race, like that race at, at Bolton just became... I mean, just like a war of resilience, really. It's an unbelievably tough course. It was pouring down with rain. And what you've got is this 10, 12, 14, 16-hour war of resilience, a feat of endurance. But beforehand, people are looking at the performance in the swimming pool, and maybe they're what their FTP score is on the bike, and then how the run sessions are going in training. And then trying to equate that to a finish time, going, well, you know, that guy who has the same FTP as me did that time last year, so I should probably be around there. And that guy there, I beat him in a 5K last week, and last year he did this in Ironman, so I should probably be faster than him in an Ironman. And that trying to equate those training times to a performance in a huge race over such a vast time period as that. Thoughts on that, Ian? Yeah, I do wonder if, um, uh, obviously, there's been a lot of, um move towards sort of people training and racing online and so on and whether that's led to a greater awareness of other people's levels and then that's you know inevitably going to increase our tendency to compare ourselves to them which is generally seen as a, a less positive motivation what we'd normally do is though would you'd encourage people to do is to look back at their own performances um judge where they are in training and compared to where they were themselves in training in the past and how that equates to a performance when you're setting goals and putting together a race plan. But because we've got kind of a gap in our own race history as well, it's uh, more difficult to do that. So perhaps that, that has moved people towards sort of comparing themselves um, to other people and other performances and um, uh, and setting their targets based on others, which, you know, as we know, brings in a, a variable that we're not, that in control of in terms of other people's performances. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, do you know, I, I, I tried to, I was having a chat with someone last week about this and trying to explain this concept. So if you've not done an Ironman before and you want to do an Ironman race next year, the only really thing you can gauge on how well you're going to go in an Ironman is whether you've done one before and what time you did last time on the same course. And that's it. You can't really look at your training and then start coming up with wild figures and thinking, well, I should be able to do this, 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 and this. Because such and such a body I know did this, 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 and this. It doesn't work that well. You know, training is just preparation and racing is a completely different ball game. Uh, Mike, what's your... Uh, Agree completely with what you just said. And one thing I've been fascinated by is, um, and there's been lots of these posts flying around, the people whose range for their expected time is is crazy. I read one guy who was like, well, I, I was hoping for 11 hours, but my backup plan was 15 hours. So my 12.59 was perfect. 
And I'm like, wow, you've given yourself a margin of error that's so big you can't fail here. Is yeah. that is that intentional? Is it not? What if it had been 1301? What if it had been 1230? Is, is that going to make a massive difference to your um, appreciation and reflection on it? So, um, you know, I think to me, I've always been someone who's quite specific with my goals. I'll have a backup goal, but there's, there's you know, it's to the minute, to the second sometimes that I'm aiming for. Um but those goals need to be realistic and the difference being they can change. What I would imagine happened with that guy is that on the good part of his training, he probably thought, I can get 11 hours here if everything falls into place. In the bad bits of his training, he went, oh, I'd be lucky to get 15 hours here. And he's just plucked 13 hours out as as the middle range of that, which is fine if, if you want maybe more cultures in, in that goal next time. But um, But yeah, don't make them arbitrary things. You know, if if it's going to be arbitrary, just finish, just yeah. finish, and just leave that as your goal, and then you'll never be disappointed with it. But um, but I've also then seen some people who miss their goals be very reflective and really level-headed in their analysis of missing those goals. So that should stand them in better stead. What I would say on the back of what you said about um, comparing yourself to you previously is again with a huge pinch of reality because you may not be the same you as well so um so it's a benchmark at best yeah yeah and i guess it comes back to we've talked a lot of times about being process orientated or goal orientated so when actually other weekend i didn't wear a watch so i didn't have a watch on the swim i didn't have any any garmin or anything on the bike because i know the course anyway so i roughly know know how far where i am on the course and how far around i am I didn't have a, so I didn't have a power meter, a heart rate monitor, didn't even have a watch on the bike, didn't know how long I've been riding for. Uh, didn't have a watch on the run, didn't know how long I've been running for, the pace it was running, didn't know anything. Um, so I was completely blind for the whole race. It kind of doesn't matter because I'm just trying to go at what is the right pace and the best pace I can manage. And the time is what it is really, you know, and that's that's the way I approached it, just to be, be process orientated and just be, do the best you can. Um, I kind of just felt I didn't need to look at my Garmin to tell me if I was going faster or slower than anticipated. I was just going to go off field for the whole way. Um, and I think that's probably a better way than going in and saying, I'm going to do this time or that time. You know, you're just going to go in and do follow the process. and It will be what it will be, won't it? And like we said before about, you know, the you put yourself in under that pressure, the weight of, of that goal then and that metric measurement because it starts raining it gets cold the road surfaces are different the wind picks up so many things change that will affect positively or negatively those those time splits and just race sometimes is the key thing and go off that rate of perceived exertion yeah yeah i honestly think one and we talked a lot about things like you know volume versus intensity and and how your training should be balanced and so on and i just think with ironman uk that was a classic example of we try and break triathlon into swimming, cycling and running as these three separate disciplines. But just take that out of the equation for most people, for the average person. What it was, was just a 14 hour feat of endurance in bad conditions. So mental resilience, physical resilience, how that's impacted over 14 hours of continuously racing. The swim, the bike and the run elements are kind of irrelevant. Take them out of the picture. It was a continuous 14 hour effort where you're physically and mentally capable of dealing with that. You know, because 
when you break it into swim, bike and run, people will ask the question, well, how long would you be on the bike for? Well, I might be on the bike for seven hours. Right, okay, well, let's do the longest ride of five or six hours and you're almost up to seven hours. And maybe what we'll do is actually one ride of seven hours where you're actually riding for race distance. How long do you think you're going to be running for? Four and a half hours. Okay, we'll get up to three, three and a half hours running in training. Nothing you do in training prepares you for 14 hours of continuous exercise. Nowhere near. Maybe half of that time, seven hours maximum for some people. But nothing compares you for a 14-hour resilience test, physical and psychological. And I think that's the danger of breaking it into. If that was a run, so if it was just running, people would look at it and go, right, I'm going to run for 14 hours. So how long should I be out for in training? And they might go and do some runs of 10 hours. But because we break it into swim, bike and run, we ask the question, how long am I going to be swimming for? How long will I bike for? How long will I run for? And that determines your longest session in each of those three disciplines. You never get anywhere near 14 hours in training. So I think in triathlon, that's one of the dangers of breaking it into those three disciplines. It is a 14 hour resilience event. Ian, what's your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I, I agree. And I don't think the, the answer is necessarily to go out and try and do, uh, you know, 14 hour sessions to prepare yourself. Because I think. No, no absolutely. Uh, yeah, because yeah. uh, what, what you, it's, it's differentiating between preparing the body and preparing the mind, isn't it? I think, and, uh, and actually, it's the mind that you need to get ready most for that 14 hour resilience test. Yeah, uh, accepting that um, physiologically, you've done everything to get the body um, ready as possible for that, and then the execution on the day is actually about your planning and pacing, nutrition how you respond to when the weather changes and what decisions you make when you when you're out there to maximize the performance uh in turn because you know until you get deep into the run there's probably at any point anyone could go quicker if they wanted to um so th there's always decisions to be made around pacing um nutrition wise we're obviously going to uh, we have a plan setting out but we also we need to execute that but sometimes we need to adapt that in the conditions because obviously for example Sunday was very humid that might change what your plans are in terms of nutrition so I think uh, and accepting that you know that re mental resilience and that ability to cope for that uh, cope with that is an important aspect to your preparation so you know we might set performance related goals in terms of times that we want to do for each segment and for overall in the race but in terms of that process, we also want to be setting targets for how well we actually cope and respond on the day uh, and then analyse that afterwards and appraise how we've done on that, because then that's something that we can potentially improve upon uh, moving forward. Yeah, yeah. Mike, any thoughts? Yeah, I think we can be really clever. As you say, segmenting, it's not a clever move. It, it is on paper, but in reality, it's not. And I think just being smart to segment some, um, to to blend some of that segmentation. You know, if you um, if you've got a long run on a on a long bike on a sun Saturday and a long run on a Sunday, can you condense the time between them? Can it be Saturday evening, Sunday morning? Yeah. You're going to recover, you get the training benefits, but you're exposing yourself to to that bit of fatigue. Can you go and do a a race somewhere on the weekend, but then put a run off your own back when the race is finished, just to um trying to, to push a, a little bit more your boundaries and learning what it's like to deal with that 
resilience, fatigue, and the reality of, as you say, what a 14-hour day would actually look like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, it's, I can, a few weeks back before the race, I was chatting to someone, and, and, and he, he was a guy kind of, I would say, wanted to get inside cut off, maybe 16-hour competitor, asking him, what's the longest ride you've done? It's probably like two or three months ago. What's the longest ride you've done? Uh, 100 kilometres. Kilometres are alarm bells for me straight away, you know. Let's talk in kilometres because it sounds longer. So, so right, so let's, 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 you know, put this in real money. So it's what, 60, just over 60 miles. A four-hour ride of just over 60 miles. And it's like, yeah, but, you know, that's, that's actually just, just over halfway for the bike. So it's not long enough. But let's just step away from this and look at the big picture that you've got to swim before and you've got a marathon after. So your longest training session is four hours on a bike for what is going to be a 16-hour day. And I think that's something that gets missed in triathlon. It is a 16-hour day for a lot of people. And their longest training session might be a four- or five-hour bike ride. To mentally prepare yourself for a 16-hour day and physically prepare yourself for a 16-hour day on a longest training session of four or five hours is incredibly hard. And I'm not suggesting people should go out for 12-hour training days, but I do think it's a critical thing that people miss because they break it into swim, bike, and run. But so just on Mark, I don't think breaking down a performance, you know, overall into smaller segments is, in itself is necessarily a bad thing, because I think that can be a useful psychological strategy to sort of break down the performance. I think it's the speci- specific breaking down into swim, cycle, and run that's problematic, isn't it? Because it it makes you equate that with what it feels like in training, and those events are not going to feel like they do in training when you're doing them in the event, and that's the day, and especially as you go forward in the event. So it probably becomes more problematic as you move forward into the the bike, and then especially the run, because uh, that, that's going to feel a lot different to to what a four or five hour run might feel like in in training, even if you're out there that long. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I mean, I, I break my training to swim, bike and run. I break it into segments. I think what the point I'm making here is that I also have the knowledge to step back and look at it from the picture. And so we get so, but I think a lot of people get so focused on the swim, bike and run that they actually fail to step back. So when we're talking about it's 112 miles on the bike. So what's the longest ride I need to do? Well, let's at least get up to 100 and then you're almost at 112. It's not a cycling event of 112 miles. It's a triathlon. There's a two and a half mile swim in a marathon, and the whole day is 16 hours. But we, we, so it's important to take a step back and appreciate that as well, because that impacts everything: your training, your pacing strategies in the events. You know, your swim will impact your bike and your run. Your bike will impact your run. You know, all of those kind of things. I think it's you need to take a step back and just look at that broader picture sometimes. Um. What else do we need to talk about? I'll tell you what we should talk about. Fat feet. How big were my feet on Monday? <laughs> Jeez. Unbelievable. I look like um, something out of Lord of the Rings. Yeah, fat feet. But, of course, post-event. The post-event blues. Well, you know, just going off another tangent, we always talk about, at Lakeland 100, always talk about the 24-hour rule. Well, the 24-hour rule is very, very simple. Don't say never again until 24 hours has passed. It's that it's that um, change in 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 a psychology and that change in attitude from if anybody sees me anywhere near a bike in the next year, you have permission to shoot me. 
And then by that evening, you're thinking, oh, that was good. It was tough, that, but I'm not going to do another one. And then by the next morning, you're already looking at what, when's the entries opening for next year? That 24-hour rule, you know, never say never again, how it shifts in the 24-hour period. But there is a genuine thing to talk about here, which is post uh, Ironman. And of course, for Ironman guys on Sunday, they're in this, this first week after they've, after they've completed the event. What comes next? You know, the post and, and the post event blues or post Ironman blues. We've seen that a lot with people, this loss of motivation, almost, I would say, for some people, bordering on proper depression. Because um, it really is a thing, isn't it, Mike? Yep, it's that sense of loss. It's that completion of something that's been, you know, a focus for so long. I generally think that although you see these crazy people who try to get into Ironman shape in a crazy short period of time, I think a lot of people train for too long for it. Um, you see so many people taking 12 upwards of 12 months to get to an Ironman. And right through that process, whether it's what's to come, what's been, all of those things, we're very good at appreciating, acknowledging and recognising the physical and the mental commitment and investment that we make to them. But part of that mental commitment is that emotional commitment. You know, the, the, the thrill and appeal always was and still is to me with any ultra distance event, the journey and the process, the race is the goal at the end. And there's a gap, there's a real sort of emptiness when it's done. Um, and that's something that we should appreciate earlier. You know, I learned relatively quickly over the years that it's really important for me to have something over the horizon. What What is ahead? I know I'm going to have this slump afterwards. Is there a small race I've got to look forward to four, six weeks later? Is there a big race a couple of months later? Is it a family holiday? Is it going and playing, I don't know, a game of badminton because I've missed that for nine months because I've been coach, um, concentrating on this training? But having something there to, to to deal with that, I think, counters it a lot of the time. But um, but there's a lot of people I've seen questioning why I feel empty. Why do I feel so? I've just done the greatest thing I've ever done. Why do I feel so low about it? And, and they they throw this, you know, the, the, rightly so. Oh, it's because your body's depleted. It's because physically your emotion and, and, and um, psychologically you're fatigued. But the emotions, and, and I'm sure Ian can give us more insight, but the emotions are so important that we have to give it a little bit more time and attention. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah, I just want to be a psychologist who can explain it. Yeah. Some of those effects of the actual event in terms of the effects on our fatigue and you know, the endocrine system are obviously going to influence our, our thoughts. But um, I, I think uh, there are other things that are important here. And I think Mike alluded to a couple of them there. He mentioned a sense of loss. And I think there is a, there is definitely a, a sense of loss um, in the uh, immediate progress. Um, firstly, the, there's that sort of loss of routine. I think you know, Mike, you mentioned routine earlier and being an important part of training. All of a sudden, that that routine is something that we rely on in our lives gets taken away from us because it's not something we're going to be following for for a little while. Um, there's also the the loss of the fitness gains because all about the, pre the all the preparation is you know we're getting fitter we're getting stronger we're building and then the the very nature of endurance sport 
and particularly big air races is that uh, that that damage you know we've just been talking about you know putting ourselves to 14 16 hour um resilience tests that we actually do a lot of damage to ourselves and we're not as fit as we were immediately before so there's that loss of that fitness and that ability that is something that's become part of our identity i think that we lose immediately post race um, which is difficult to deal with but we've also got all the emotions of the actual event themselves sort of mixed in, I think, uh, with that as well. So, you know, obviously this differs for different people because if you've, if you've hit your targets and hit your goals uh, and you've got a lot of positive emotions coming out of that, that, I think that can buffer some of the other things that you might be experiencing at the time. Obviously, if, you've, um, if things haven't gone so well, um, then you've got a lot of negative emotions because of the disappointment from that as well. Um, so that's that loss of sort of expectation, those that that potential, that that thing that you thought you were going to get as reward for um, the effort that you put in in training, could be something you're experiencing at that time. And I think, yeah, you know, in terms of what we do about that, and I think some of the important things to do in that sort of immediate period is probably just to sort of reward ourselves and celebrate the, the performance, regardless of what it is, as much as we can. Um, for that sort of 24 hours afterwards, because I think at that point you, 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 because you're suffering because of the event, because you're experiencing those emotions, it's not the time to start planning and start looking forward. I think you mentioned Mark somewhere on social media about um, Ironman Wales being in eight weeks and not wanting to even think about that at that time. You know, and, and it's natural that what you've experienced and what you put yourself through in that event is not something that it, it's a bit too um, recent. For you to start thinking about putting yourself through that again in the future so you know we want to be trying to distract ourselves and distance ourselves from that i think for 24 hours just sort of you know, celebrate that we've actually put ourselves through it and, and completed the task yeah can i just say I, yeah i kind of add until you just brought it up you know what i mean i, well, I, I had stopped thinking about it until you just remember yeah. so thanks for that yeah yeah uh but but <laughs> yeah sorry yeah but then I think once you move out of that and you're starting to recover from it, then, you know, I think that what you need to do then is start planning and start looking forward, you know, and evaluating. Because I think you can make that evaluation much more objectively once you've got, once some of those immediate emotions have started to dissipate, you do that more accurately. And I think once you start planning, evaluating what your training's been like, evaluating your performance, you don't want the memory of the event to be too distant. Uh, and to get coloured by hearing about what other people have done so that you maybe don't have the most accurate recollection, but you don't want it to be too influenced by the emotions as well, to evaluate how you actually executed and what you might do differently and make sure we write that down so that we've got a record of that for, for when we're next in that in that race phase, but also evaluating the, the training as well and start planning for the next event. And I think although physically you're not ready to start training again, the mere the fact that you're starting to plan and actually gaining some knowledge from the event that you've just been through, I think helps you deal with that sort of uh, the blues and that that downside. I think it is a little bit probably easier at this time of the year where you might have another air race later in the year um, than it is if it's at the end of the sort of race season and you might have a winter to, to cope with as well. So at yeah. least at this point, I think you, you people have got another race that if it hasn't gone as well as they'd hoped, then they've, uh, they've kind of got that opportunity for redemption as well coming up. Yeah, yeah. I, uh, from my personal experience of racing Ironman races, 
when I've had multiple races in a season, so if I've like done Ironman UK and then I've got I've got Ironman Wales, so I know that I have to have a, a relatively quick turnaround between the two. I'll tend to get back into light training literally two days after, and it will be active recovery. I would call it not training at all, because when I, I when I took a, I remember in the past taking a full week off after an Ironman race. And physically and mentally, absolutely crashed. And I mean really crashed. Lethargy, de- almost just depressed, just felt awful. And then I'd never do that again. So I'd encourage people, if you, if you have an eye money listening, to try and get back into a routine of very gentle, active recovery. So and when I'm saying active recovery, I didn't do anything Monday because I was in bits. But on Tuesday, uh, so yesterday, I just rode my bike very easy for 45 minutes, static bike, 45 minutes with no resistance. Uh, This morning, swam 1,500 metres. This evening, I'll do 45 minutes again, very easy on the bike. And I'll probably keep doing that this week and then maybe won't run till next week. But that for me, my, my feet are less fat. I've noticed that as well. Obviously, with the uh, exercise and circulation, it did help my fat feet. But I, but I've done that multiple times in the past, and it has a, a much uh, um, better impact than just thinking I'll have two weeks off, which seems to be the worst thing. And I'm not suggesting by any means you should be training, but I'm suggesting active recovery. And I quite look forward to, you know, we always say like, so on a Thursday because the, the shop shut on a Thursday, so we go and ride long. So we'd already penciled in that this Thursday we're going to ride for an hour, have a full English at the cafe and ride back for an hour. And that's all we're going to do. And I quite look forward to that because it's social and, um, you know, it's just a nice thing to do. So it's not training by any means. But, yeah, whether it's a routine, whether it's the flushing stuff out of the system, whether it's the endorphins or what, I don't know. But a week off for me is just it's the worst thing I could possibly do. So I think, and I know we talk about people setting other goals, don't we? So the next thing you set another goal, enter another event, and you've got another target to aim for. And for me personally, it doesn't have to be that because um, I just think getting back into the routine of training and maybe not stressing about another event to enter, but just getting back into training, but doing something that you really enjoy. So whether it's riding your mountain bike down the canal or, you know, just going for a gentle swim, whatever it is, um, but maybe that's something in there again, Ian, about maybe I enjoy riding my bike as well. So I'm looking forward to riding my bike tomorrow to the cafe and riding back again. Maybe there's something in there about process versus goal orientated people, which we've talked about a lot in the past. How a goal orientated person, I'm going to train. I'm, I, I'm not, I'm, I don't enjoy swimming, cycling and running, but I just want to hit this goal. I want to do this Ironman and get the medal and the tattoo. And then after that, it's done. Compared to the process orientated people, who swim, bike and run because they love swim, bike and running. You know, maybe there's something there with with how it affects people differently, whether you're process or goal orientated. Yeah, I'm not aware of any research that's looked at that specifically, but I can definitely see that. I think if someone's very outcome focused, um, then in terms of the post-race blues um, and what they do post big event, it's probably much more chance that there's going to be a sort of a big crash and a and are not really um, any clarity on, on what they're doing next. Um, and they obviously haven't got that big objective to, to motivate them anymore. Whereas, yeah. yeah, I think you mentioned they're you know, enjoying swim, biking, running. 
there's quite a lot of people that don't necessarily enjoy all three. Uh, you've got that. I think that the benefit of that period is you can sort of reward yourself and just do the things that you enjoy doing. Yeah. I think the other to to think about is it's almost like the opposite side of the taper, isn't it? Where you know, you've got your fitness, what you want to do is maximise that fitness for race day and your taper. When you're coming out the other side, you want to maximise your recovery. So you, you you want to go out and do something that makes you feel as though you're doing something, like you're saying, maybe sort of flushing out the system, but also getting back into some routine feels a bit more positive. But you want to make sure that it's measured so you're not doing something that potentially damaging. You know, maybe avoiding the running is probably the one for most people that uh, is the one there. I mean, might might want to comment on that from a physio perspective, but that's probably the one that's potentially the most risky sort of in that first week. But if you enjoy just going out and yeah, and it's much easier to go out and do really low intensity work um, out on a bike than it is running as well. So yeah, going out. I think I've lost you there, Ian. Mike, oh, can you still hear me? Yeah, I've got you. He's back now. I think. Is he? Sorry, Dave, what point did you lose me? Um, uh, I, I was just saying. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I was just I'm saying. Just I think you know. <laughs> Go on, sorry, Ian. It's just uh, you know making sure that whatever you're doing in that immediate um, post-event time is is maximising recovery and helping re- recovery and maybe helping you cope psychologically with that um, return, but not necessarily doing any harm physically. So maybe more of a focus on swimming and cycling rather than on running for that first week would be uh, yeah. recommended. Yeah. I mean, for me, it's like it's 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 um, getting outside in the sunshine, hopefully, not the rain. So that sunshine and fresh air and doing something that I enjoy and that I want to do and I'm motivated to do. And also, if I can, really, the big thing for me, I tend to work, is doing it socially. So meeting a couple of other people and saying, let's just go for an easy, a very gentle bike ride, have a coffee and ride back again, kind of ticks all those boxes. Me sit, sit on, sat inside on a Watt bike looking at a screen would not tick those boxes for me. You know? So it's just, it's that kind of thing. And then I guess the other thing is, we t- you know, we're talking here about the first couple of weeks of what do we do just yeah. in this recovery phase now and just get back in some gentle recovery and it shouldn't be training but then of course after that next two weeks then you where do you go from where do you go from there you know so it's uh it's them picking it up from there isn't it so um uh, mike anything yeah. what are you guys doing after after i am on now what are they going to be doing going forward for the next 10 weeks so it's different on each one of them depending on what their goals were what they took out of them what so so in answer to the question about um running i've got some who are runners and it was a big sacrifice to deviate just from running onto other things and they want to go back to just enjoying some long runs um what i would say to the general public is um there's a there's a natural tendency to steer away from running because it it's the the hard bit for some but actually if you're looking at controlling the volume and intensity of your training, running can be helpful for some because it's easy to get carried away doing the other stuff. So I, I don't mean to do a lot, but the hour bike ride turned into a three-hour bike ride because it was easy and fun. 
but the run is quite an honest thing that tends to tell you what to do. So my my guys have got a couple of weeks taking very easy weeks. I got a couple of guys who are preparing short turnarounds for other things. They've gone back into some sort of of a bridge training, and we're going to have a longer taper for their next one. So it's like a little spike, and then we taper them off again. So so it all depends. Um, what I've always found personally, which which is um has always been useful for me. The when you're in a training plan, I think it's easy to feel productive, focused, and and on on a trajectory that's in the right way my sense of loss when it came to um, post-race events was always um, not being productive it felt like I was just doing nothing so I always used to make mine that I'd make something productive in that seven to ten days my bike might go for a service I might ride for that fry up like you said Mark but I'd sit there with a notebook writing my reflections on my training plan or I'd chat yeah. to someone else who I'd raced with or my coach and say, right, what went well? What would be even better if? And I'd, I'd start picking apart and analysing it, not too soon, because you, as you say, it can be too emotional and you haven't had time to digest it. But I would always feel then that the physical things I were doing, I could accept a much lower turnaround of what I was doing because I was still moving forward in my iron man journey so to speak so um so there's smart ways to play it you know you, you may have um you may have focused all your attention on road bikes but really you love mountain bikes so maybe just you know put the cleats away put the pedals away get them the old mountain bike out and just ride ride down to the local river and have a picnic or something do do something just absolutely different go for a long walk or whatever but um definitely be active do something but um unless your future events dictate it make it relatively unstructured yeah yeah um yeah and i think yeah i think you're right i mean that's that we did talk about in the previous podcast think that this switch between training and racing and you know to a large extent if you've been training all winter and all spring your fitness is kind of there isn't it it's this mind shift to what do I need to do now to improve my racing performances? And it's easy to just stay stuck in the program. And as you feel like you're making progress, you've got to do another session, another session. And actually, like you say, you may spend more time, do better by spending more time after each event, sat down and writing some notes and reflecting, and then looking at the events ahead and checking the course out or reading the notes and making sure you know what the profiles are like on the routes and all of that kind of stuff. And more of that in your in your program rather than the just the training plan you know it's that that mental shift isn't it i guess i I think it is key to do as much of that sort of evaluation in that week or two afterwards while you are sort of in that down period because once you get back into training you start thinking you start thinking practically in terms of well i've got work then i've got to do that then and you might say, uh, so that is influencing your thinking so you'll think well actually i don't need to do as long a ride or i don't not going to benefit me to do a longer run because you're thinking you know in pragmatic terms i think you, when you can be much more objective in that week or two afterwards what could i have done about my training that would have improved it so uh, you're not being influenced by these other factors now if it comes to the fact that when you actually plan it or when you're doing it it's not practical to be able to do that then that's a different issue i think in terms of prioritizing in your life and deciding you know what you can do and what you can't do but if you make the decisions about what ideally you would do 
sort of when you're not being influenced by other factors, then at least you can identify how you would improve things in an ideal world. And then you can sort of put that into a real world situation on the other side, because if you try and make those decisions when you're in the middle of the training, it's likely that actually jumping on the on Swift for half an hour sounds like a really good idea and you can convince yourself that that's the right thing to do. Um, when when you might have written, if you've written down in that week or two afterwards, need to do more out on the road. Um, you know, three weeks before the race, I need to be getting out on the race course, X, Y, and Z. And that's all written down and there are things that you've said that you would like to do. Now, it proves that you can't actually do that. It's not practical. That's a different matter. But I think just try and separate those two is a good thing to do. Yeah. But planning your nutrition and, you, you know, working yeah. out now nutrition and what's your approach to the swim start and your race strategy and all that kind of stuff you know i think that's yeah i mean i've said this before i've said this many times that i just believe that a lot of the coaching now is far too focused on the plan it's all about the plan percentage of this percentage of that let's write this art form plan that's all encompassing but that that's never going to make you perform on race day that is just conditioning that's like sending someone to the gym and then saying you know go and do a strength routine and now you can play rugby but it's just it just it doesn't work you know it's conditioning it's not gameplay and I, I, I think that if the one thing I would say to people to this time of year now is just to the training training kind of is what it is now you've got races on so what's going to make you faster on race day and your approaches to those yeah mm, anything final from you Mike to finish no I think that's everything I had jotted down for um for the reflections of the last week be interesting to see if Wales goes ahead or some of the some of the Lakeland competitors to to revisit and, and assess if some of this has carried on into other things or whether it was um, something that we've seen unique to the start of the season. But yeah. um, and again, when we if you're if you've clicked the link of this on our social medias and you've got comments and experiences, then do do make a, a reply and let us know how, how you guys have found your experiences. Yeah. Yeah. Anything from you, Ian? Yeah, no, just similar really. It's going to be interesting. Obviously, we're focused on triathlon today, to, uh, but as we've got the sort of some of the bigger UK ultras coming up, including Lakeland 100, to see it, whether some of the same issues um, uh, manifest in that as well. And um, yeah, Lakeland coming up myself, so I'll look forward to my own fat feet too. Yeah. Hey, at least at least you used to have to run for 14 hours to get fat feet. Mine are there every morning. Yeah. Well, well, thanks very much for joining us. Me, me and Ian have got to go now, Mike, because we've got a we've got a football match to watch. It's coming home, you see. Uh, apparently <laughs> so. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So hasn't, hasn't it got a beer at home to come home? Yeah. Are you breaking up, Mike? You breaking yeah. up, Ian? I can't. Wait. <laughs> Together, boys. Uh, we will later. see you soon, and uh, look forward to doing. Yeah. Cool. Okay. Cheers, guys. Thanks, Thanks for listening to the show today. If you want to follow us on Twitter, you can follow myself uh, via the Endurance Store at Endurance Coach. You can follow Mike, the Endurance Physio, at the Endurance PT. And you can follow Dr. Ian Bordley at MD Sport X. That's MD Sport EX. Uh, you can also visit our website. You can visit theendurancestore.com, which is a local running shop near Wigan. And uh, we also offer the Endurance Coach testing and coaching services. And also just check out sportsinjuryfix.com where you can find a sports injury specialist near you. Speak to you soon.